as you mentioned, I'll be sharing this afternoon about um, what my family and I are about to embark on for the cause of missions. And I want to be very careful and precise in my language so that you all know what I'm talking about when I use the term missions. Many of you are probably, are probably familiar with what's been called the Great Commission from Matthew 28, 19. Okay, advanced slide. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's the essence of the Great Commission. It's essentially to go and make disciples. Missions is simply a subset of that Great Commission in that it is the process of disciple making among the nations who do not yet have a viable group of disciple makers. In the missions world, we use that term unreached to describe such nations or ethno-linguistic people groups who are unreached by the gospel. For instance, America is reached because there are all of you here and many others who are disciple makers um, that can replicate what's been going on disciple making. But there are places in the world that has absolutely no Christians uh, among them. And so missions is the process of getting disciple makers into those places to eventually become um, replicators so that they're reached. So now the folks who go and do the disciple making among the unreached are the missionaries or the goers, whereas those back um, in the home church in the reached people group are the senders of the missionaries, so senders of the goers. My purpose uh, in mentioning this is to make sure we're all on the same page as, the, as to these terms. What my family are, and I are doing is just, I want to point out, is just one way of executing missions, and certainly not the only way. This is one particular strategy using the particular qualities and resources of one particular family to get access to one particular region of one particular unreached people group. I make that point because sometimes we get this idea that missions is this one thing. You put on a pith helmet, you go into the jungle, you ring a bell, and that's what missions is. But it's very different in missions, say, to Japan than it would be to, say, um, Botswana. So it's not all the same bucket. This is just one group. So as you hear my story, my desire is that you would think strategic yourself, strategically yourself, on, on how to maximize, or the Christian word would be steward, your resources, the giftings that God has given you to accomplish the task of missions. I'm not suggesting that all of us here in America are called to be missionaries or goers in terms of missions. In fact, in order for missionaries to go, they, they must be sent by people, which means by implication, there must be senders. So I am suggesting that we are all called, indeed, we are all privileged, we all get to be a part of the fulfilling of missions, either as goers or as senders. As you hear this presentation, I want you to think about thinking strategically and going as a missionary, or think about thinking strategically about how to send missionaries, both how to strategically align your resources to send them, and also how to strategically assess whom to send. Okay, with that, I would ask that you would join me now in prayer for this segment of our worship. Eternal Father, wonderful counselor, Prince of Peace, Almighty God, you are gracious and merciful to us, merciful in taking all our iniquity on yourself as we remember this Advent season of your birth. You, Jesus, being found in human form, you humbled yourself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And though that mercy that you showed is infinitely more than what we deserve, you don't stop at that mercy, but you bestow on us riches and gifts, gifts freely given by you, not wages earned by us. And with those gifts, you give us a chance to use them for great and wonderful purposes, most importantly, to glorify you, to see more of your wonder, which fills us with joy. Help me now speak clearly about one of these wonderful purposes, 
to use the gifts you've given us for the cause of missions, for the goal of making your good news known among the nations, so that they too might glorify you and enjoy your wonder. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, I'll start by giving you a little background uh, of my wife and I. I'm going to pause here now um, at this point in my quick biographical overview to go back and dive a little deeper as to what God was doing in me uh, during those years that I uh, discussed. Um, my parents raised me in a Christian home, but I didn't become awakened to the truth of the gospel until my late teen years. However, um, after becoming a Christian, I learned that all my I, I learned that all my past sins were paid for by Christ's atonement on the cross. But unfortunately, I mistakenly thought that from that point on, meaning after my conversion, um, everything now was up to me as far as dealing with my sins moving forward, sanctification. This wrong understanding um, was certainly not unique to me. Although believing and professing to be saved by grace, I was really functioning more as a works-based theology. As I became increasingly aware of my sin, I tried to find ways to work them off, to find favor with God. I would sin and think, oh, I've got to do more quiet times or something. The harder or more unpleasant the task, uh, presumably, whatever it is that I'm doing to try to find favor with God, um, the greater the wages I would be paid to cover my increasing sin. When I heard about missions in college, um, I thought, well, that seems pretty miserable. I think I need to do that. Then uh, when I was told at that time, this is the uh, early 90s, um, I figured uh, that at that time, Sub-Saharan Africa was the most miserable place on the planet, so I figured God must want me to go there. Um, by then, I was in medical school and needed to uh, choose a specialty. I was told at that time, in order to be a medical missionary, you had really only two options, either family practice or general surgery. Well, general surgery residency seemed way more miserable, so that clearly was what God wanted me to do. So I did that, and the degree of misery exceeded my expectations. Um, it was uh, really rough. I was thoroughly miserable, and yet I thought that's what was necessary to find favor with God. So after that, I looked for a job because I had debt and all that other stuff, and so I joined a small, I went to, a, as I mentioned, a small town in Michigan um, where I was probably the only Asian person in the county. Um, and uh, I joined there because it was a Christian multi-specialty group that um, supported missions. And uh, as a result of that, my income was about half of what a typical general surgeon would make. But I thought, you know, I'm, I'm doing this for the Lord, and, uh, and so therefore I, I make these sacrifices. And, uh, and I go to a small town where, as you can imagine, I'm miserable. Um, it, there's not a lot of things for, uh, so I, I was a total oddball because I'm this single young um, Asian physician in this uh, rural community. Um, so then after about three years of that, I finished off paying my debt. And by the way, all this time I'd been saying you know, to my partners and everyone else, I'm, I'm going overseas, I'm going to be a full-time missionary um, to Africa. And um, after about three years of this, I, was, I truly was miserable. And uh, God had not um, come through with his part of the bargain. It was very transactional. Workspace theology is very transactional. This is how it goes. I do this, then you do this for me, God. Very much. And you think, well, why would anyone think that way? Well, actually, we all kind of think that way. Most of us, at least a natural mind does, uh, think Santa Claus. Naughty, nice list. If I do this, you, it's, a, it's a transactional thing. So after three years of doing this, and... Um, 
I paid off my debt, got most of my board, uh, got all my credentialing done and all that stuff. But the one thing that I really thought, well, surely God, if I do all these sacrificial things, surely you would then give me what I want and that would be a wife. And I wasn't married and I had no, there didn't seem to be any prospects of anyone like that. So um, as I was preparing to go overseas for two months, um, ostensibly to find where, we got, where God is going to call me next to missions for long term, really what I had in the back of my mind was, this will be my honorably, honorable way out of missions. Because, first of all, I'm going over to Africa. It's a tough place. And at this time, people were starting to do, starting to do a lot of short-term trips and stuff like that. But no one was doing two months. And uh, so, you know, this is going to be kind of a big deal. I could go there, do my time, come back and tell everyone, God clearly told me that I am not called to long-term missions, leave that practice, go get a job in a city, get married, or at least have a good life, and uh, be done with it. The problem is, and what's going on here is you think, you know, I'm doing this all, all this payback and stuff like that, and what happens over time is start looking around and saying, well, you know, I'm full of sin, I can see all that, but I've done a lot of really great things for God. And, uh, and I'm looking around at other believers and, and uh, folks and saying, I've, I've done at least what they did, if not more, and, uh, and they're having a good life in the city. Why am, I, why am I doing this stuff? It just doesn't make sense anymore. So I go off to Africa, work at a mission hospital. Again, I did get turned on to uh, reconstructive surgery there, but probably, well, not probably, far more importantly, my taste buds change. My motivation to become a missionary was no longer in order to earn favor with God, Somehow God did a work in me while I was there. Um, there's many things that uh, happened, but, um, but I learned that I really t understood and, and uh, internalized this idea that I don't do these things in order to earn favor with God, but because his favor was already upon me, that I'm allowed to do these things for, for his glory and my joy. Um, so now, I noted that I noticed that joyfully desiring God became a far more powerful motivating force than dutiful obedience for, everything else, for, for that and everything else in my life. So before going off and, um, so I get excited about that, get turned on to plastic surgery, come back to the US, tell everyone I'm gonna go be a plastic surgeon and then go back to Africa. Well, um, and remarkably, it was, I was so much more motivated to do it that there was no question in my mind that that's what was gonna happen. Interestingly, so when I was a general surgeon, people were like, eh, yeah, okay, that's fine. Yeah, well, you're going to be a missionary, all right, sort of. But then when I came back and I said, I'm going to be a plastic surgeon and go overseas, they're like, yeah, right. He's coming back to, you know, no one's going to walk away. I mean, general surgeons make a lot of money, but plastic surgeons make a lot of money. <laughs> and uh, so ironically, because of this shift in what God has shown me, um, I was far more, I was on the verge of not becoming a missionary while I was a general surgeon, and yet I gained more in the worldview, and it became um, uh, a lot easier for me to think, um, uh, uh, become a plastic surgeon, and in fact, that's what we, um, or become a missionary as a plastic surgeon, in fact, that's what we did. Now you might ask, well, so how exactly does that work, this little magic that happens? How is it possible to have joy in doing the unpleasant laws of God, or doing hard things like missions? Or you might say, besides, I'm. You know, that sounds to me like kind of legalism or something going on here. I am not going to fall for that. I have freedom in Christ from the law, so I will not feel guilty for doing whatever I want. That's what freedom in Christ is supposed to mean, be anti-legalism. But 
Um, well, let's look to scripture, what uh, scripture says about this to answer those uh, questions. So this is from uh, Deuteronomy 6.20 through 24a, and I know some of you open Bible. I think it's worth looking at your Bible because I'll say stuff and you'll be like, that can't be in the Bible, and it actually is in the Bible. So this way you can, you can see if I'm actually saying what's there. So here we are at uh, Deuteronomy, fourth book of the Old Testament. As some of you may know, or many of you may know, um, at this point the Israelites have been wandering the desert for 40 years after escaping Egypt and are about to enter the promised land of Canaan. Now many of these laws um, in, uh, written here in Deuteronomy were given back in the book of Exodus soon after leaving Egypt. Remember the whole Ten Commandments thing, throwing the stone, tablets down and all that other stuff. So now we're back, so we're, 40 years have gone by. The first part of Deuteronomy repeats and reminds the peoples of, people of those laws. Chapter 6 includes something of a summary as well as an explanation of motivation for following the laws. So uh, starting at verse 20, when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always. So, of course, I added the bold and the underlining. For our good always. That's why he, has, that's why he wants us to do the laws. There you go. Even back in the Old Testament, the law was never a set of job tasks that needed to be done in order to get God's favor or to get paid back. Because we don't do the laws in order to say, okay, is this good enough, God? Or now you got to pay me. So the law is not stuff we have to do in order to get some reward from God. Doing the commands is the reward. The actual law is for our good. It's for our good always. The commands and the statutes and the rules were a set of instructions in how to use the gifts of God, including our very lives for our good. It's how to maximize his gifts for our own good, the greatest good of which is to be amazed and experience the wonder of knowing God. So here's a story that might be helpful as an analogy to this. Um, my oldest son, uh, when uh, we came back from Ethiopia, we were, um, if you were, he was about eight years old, seven years old, so um, there's not a lot of bikes in Ethiopia. So got him a bike and said, all right, wait, I'm going to teach you how to ride a bike. Great father, something. He was all excited, so we go by, by this nice gleaming bike. And uh, by this time, he had learned how to ride a scooter, you know, one of those things. And so, but now it's like, you know, it's going to go big time. So we start working on the bike, and, I'm, and essentially I'm saying, I'm essentially saying giving him statutes and rules and commands. I'm saying put your foot exactly like this, balance like this, do this. Do exactly what I tell you, and you'll be able to ride a bike. It's not going to be easy, but do exactly as I tell you. So we start working on the bike and all that stuff and working on it, and, and it's hard. You know, at first it's very unstable and balanced to a point where he's, he said, you know what, forget it. I don't want to ride a bike. I'm just going to, I'll be happy with my scooter. And uh, to which, of course, since I'm a good father, I said, you're going to get back on that bike. <laughs> and we're going to do this. And there was a moment when after he learned, he finally learned how to ride a bike, and I'm riding next to him, and we're going down the road, and he just... He just, I, I just, it's almost like something from a movie. I see him, he has his head like this, his eyes closed, the hair blowing in the wind, and a smile on his face. 
And I can tell you, at that moment, he is not thinking, I'm the greatest, look at me. Look at me, how great I am at uh, riding a bike that I did. And he also isn't thinking, he also isn't thinking, okay, dad, I've done everything that you told me. I, to I did exactly what you told me. Everything that you said that you, uh, that you wanted me to do, even though it was hard, I did it. So pay me $10. Like, that would be absurd, right? That, that is the sort of uh, thinking in terms of legalism. Now, so, the, so it's, it's correct to not say that the law is legalism, meaning you don't do these laws in order to gain favor with God. These laws are for your good, so you get to do it. On the flip side, so, so doing those laws, coming up to your father and saying, well, now pay me for, you know, for this thing that, you, uh, that I did for you, which, of course, is for his good. That makes sense. Now, what about the other side of things, which is we're free from the law? Like Scripture says, we're no longer slaves to the law. We're, we're free in Christ. So I get to do whatever I want. Well, okay, but if, you, if what you do, if whatever you do, if the law, if you, if you don't follow God's instruction, you're actually not going to gain the benefits. So once again, as he's learning to ride the bike, he'd say, I'm free from the laws of bikes. I will put my foot on the whatever way I want, and I can lean whatever way I want. And what happens? Scrapes his knee. So that's also why the law is not, it's, or the, the thinking about how to follow the law is not what I call licentiousness. So there's a, dif there's a difference between freedom and licentiousness. So God has given us all these commands for our good. If we follow them, that is the reward. So then it becomes joy. Because now everything that God tells us to do, we say happily, Dad, show me how to ride a bike. Show me, because you're anticipating. You're saying full of joy that God is giving you the instructions to maximize your joy. They might say, well, okay, that makes sense about following specific laws. But why would I do something uncomfortable and dangerous like being a missionary? I mean, there's no, there's no law that says that we all have to do that, right? I mean, you just said it. And I'd say, yes, of course. We're not all called to be missionaries. He assigns us different, different tasks to different people based on the grace given to us. But given what we know about God, that he loves us and is out for our good, then it must follow that if he, calls, if he does call us to missions, it's for our good. That's what I meant, that we, we get to do missions. It's not... Why do I have to do that? I mean, can't I not? So let me try another illustration that might be clarifying. Um, let's say you're, the, you're, you're playing for a high school team, football team. You're a third-string quarterback. You haven't played in the game all season, but now the coach is calling you into the game. Would your response be, so this is your moment. This is your shining moment to uh, be quarterback on, uh, on the uh, team um, or for game. Would your response be, I don't know, coach, that's a lot of work. It's tiring, uncomfortable, and besides, I might get hurt out there. It's just too big of a sacrifice for me to play. Of course not. You'd say, woohoo, I get to play. And you'd work like crazy, and you'd leave it all in the field, as they say. You'll run hard, you'll, um, uh, you'll, you'll get tackled, and you'll love it. All right, um, with that explanation, or with that, all that background and information, um, and some theology there to explain my motives. I'll move on to what we uh, did and, and what we plan to do. So next slide, please. As I mentioned, about 12 years ago, we left Minnesota and could click on that little thing and flew to East, Af to, East Africa. I mentioned that we were sent to launch this startup, uh, but as valuable as a high-quality children's hospital was for Ethiopia, we had 
infinitely more value to offer, which is really the reason why we went, why we seemingly cast aside a great gig in America for a life that seemed much worse. In fact, we went for the sake of gain, for more treasure in Christ, both that we would receive and that which then overflowed to those who would otherwise never have had a chance to receive it. You see, within the geographical borders of Ethiopia, geopolitical borders of Ethiopia, there are about 112 distinct ethno-linguistic people groups. Of those, there were, or nations. Uh, of those, there were at, at that time about 31 that were unreached, which means that for almost 2,000 years since the death and resurrection of Jesus, these, 30, these 31 groups have been effectively unreached by the gospel in any kind of meaningful way. We set about to strategically reach out to these groups. Being in Ethiopia, we felt that God in his sovereignty, without any intentionality by us, placed us there because this was the best location to like spokes on a wheel with Addis at the hub. So all the roads would lead to Addis, being a, a developing country like this, and um, such that if we were in a more outskirts kind of area, then an adjacent group, in order to access us, would have to go all the way back to the capital and all the way out again. Whereas being in the middle in the hub, we can actually um, access them, all these different groups. We've marveled at how he gave us the resources and abilities to treat the most common birth deformity, cleft lip and palate. By treating the children with this deformity, we felt that we could make the most, the most profound impact to show his love with those works, with these works, and provide a platform for the missionaries working among these peoples to proclaim and explain the gospel through these good works. Because, like I said, there are 31 different nations. They speak different languages, so we don't have any of those language speakers in Addis, and, and with people speaking the national language there. But we have some missionaries working among them, and uh, they can bring the patients in, get treated, send them back. Now the missionaries have a platform. So uh, next slide. With the deformity untreated, these kids are hopeless. They are shunned, treated as outcasts, unable to go to school, get a job, have any meaningful relationships or friendships. Many don't survive infancy because they're neglected, or even worse, intentionally killed because of their deformity. But with the repair, it's as if, um, as a Muslim, the father of this child with a cleft we repaired, going click. After the repair, he said, it's like his son was born again. Um, let me show you a short movie of some more of the kids we treated while we were there. Go to the next slide, and click on that. Hopefully we'll get audio, too. So these are before and afters. Also, how did that work? How, how did we use the treatment of a child with cleft lip and palate as an illustration of the gospel? Well, the parents, of course, knew since the child was born that he was broken. It's apparent for the world to see, and it's devastating to them. He would be shunned, rarely allowed to leave his hut. Immediately after the operation, he looks essentially normal. The parents are filled with gratitude. Some even want to find some way to pay us back. As we explained before the operation, the, treat would, the treatment would be free, but not, but not cheap. We go on to tell them how, how much it actually costs, a small fraction of the cost in the U.S., which is almost unintelligible to them, as it would be the equivalent of two or three years' wages of an average worker in Ethiopia. So by U.S. scale, that would mean, I don't know, $80,000 to $120,000, if you can imagine, that's your bill. Not what insurance pays, but what you would pay out of pocket. So even if they wanted to pay us back, they could not ever come even close to making a dent into this debt. We explained that we offer this very expensive treatment at no charge to them. 
not in order to be paid back, which is effectively impossible, but in order that the child might be healed and have a fuller life, no longer an outcast. Similarly, we explain that we are all broken by sin and are plummeting toward eternal suffering because of that sin. Um, the only cure to that brokenness is freely given by Christ. It is infinitely expensive. His death on the cross is the payment for our sins. And it is utterly impossible for us to pay, us, pay him back because of the magnitude of the cost and because of our inability to offer anything that could possibly pay it down. We cannot do enough work to pay off this debt. He does not require nor desire repayment, but instead, he died for us so that we could have a full life, the full life that he has called, uh, called us to, both in this life and in the life to come, once we've been born anew by trusting and treasuring him as our Lord and Savior. Well, we lived and worked there for almost three years, but had to return to the U.S. because we developed a vision-threatening eye condition that was diagnosable and treatable, but at that time in 2010 was not treatable anywhere in Africa. However, even through those three short years, we were able to execute the strategy and saw some fruit, but more importantly, had set up the structure such that the strategy continued on and grew after we left. We've gone back at the, at the hospital leadership's request multiple times over the years, usually about twice a year for a week or so at a time to do cleft operations so then we could actually see and participate in that growth. It's now been over nine years since we moved back to the U.S. from Ethiopia. During those years, we actively pursued a number of long-term opportunities to unreached peoples where that also um, was a location where we could have sufficient eye care for a condition. Um, but uh, given that the doors to these all unexpectedly closed uh, on us, it appeared that it was not the Lord's will for us to move back overseas any, again anytime soon, or so we thought. So just 12 months ago, um, after I'd pretty much thought, eh, I, guess, I guess God is not calling us back overseas, um, I heard a presentation given by a missionary surgeon who was in a small provincial city in an agricultural region of North Africa. Um, by the way, from this point on, uh, for security reasons of, work, of those working there, I won't be mentioning specific details, so next slide. This is a map of North Africa and the Middle East, as well as parts of Southern Europe. The country we're going to is somewhere in there. <laughs> I was uh, deeply moved by the lostness of the people of the region the hospital serves. I had previously thought of this country as a fairly reached country, given its ancient Christian populations, but I learned that the small minority identifying as Christian are not evenly dis distributed around the country, and that the hospital's province, with about four million people, is virtually 100% Muslim. Furthermore, being an agricultural or rural area in a developing country, it does not have a great deal of medical and surgical care, and that which it does have is not considered by the locals, by the local people, to be of very good quality, except for the hospital the missionary was at, uh, which is highly regarded regionally because it is known as a Christian hospital. You see, in that part of the world, Christians are known to be more ethical and trustworthy than others, even though they are an oppressed minority in that majority Muslim country. To get a sense of the lostness, I'll share one story he told. Um, um, he told um, so those, the, the hospital is, has um, uh, some evangelical Christians here that are surgeons, but uh, pretty much all the other staff are local hires, so they're all Muslim. One of the young nurses who was working there, um, who had seen, um, who had worked with these uh, Christian surgeons, uh, noted their, not only their competency, but also their integrity and their kindness, and so uh, had a favorable view of them. Well, apparently, as the Lord would have it, he, uh, God gave her a dream um, one night and said, go ask these people about their faith. And uh, so she did. And they shared their faith with her. 
and, uh, and then she became a Christian. But she didn't profess this publicly because it would be far too dangerous. So she was living at home at the time with her uh, mother and father. And, um, and apparently, after she had become a Christian some, some months later, her mother, and this story is kind of funny uh, to begin with, but then turns tragic. So her mother says, you know, you used to be kind of this angry, bitter, unkind young woman, and now you're all happy and kind. Did you become a Christian? And so um, her, the nurse said, well, no. Um, and then her uh, denied it, of course. And, um, and apparently her father said, I would rather you sleep with every man in the capital city than for you to become a Christian. And then her mother said, if you become a Christian, I will kill you and drink your blood. So that is the kind of lostness that I uh, understand about this region. And this hospital in this area, this little hospital, is the only Christian witness, um, certainly in that city and probably in the entire province. Um, they were looking for more doctors to come and help, as volunteers, that is, um, the longer term, the better. So long story short, we're moving there. So next slide. So Romans chapter 10, verse 13 through 15 says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they, they to preach without being sent? Of course, these are rhetorical questions to which the answers are, they cannot be saved without calling on the name of the Lord. And they cannot call on him if they don't believe in him. And they cannot believe in him if they've never heard of him. And they cannot hear of him without someone preaching. And they cannot preach unless they're sent. Well, as I said, the city we're going to is in a rural province, so the vast majority of the people will never travel outside of their region. They will be born, grow up, work, and die without ever even meeting a Christian, much less hearing the gospel. They will, have no, they will not have any notion that they should call on the name of the Lord and be saved if there is no one there to tell them of the Lord. And, the, and, um, and though the entry gates to this place are closed to preachers, they are wide open to doctors especially to Christian doctors. Susan and I seem to fit the bill, so we're going. And uh, what about our kids, you may ask? Next slide. And yep, here they are 11 years ago again. Next picture. Um, and there they are now. Well, the closest international school is in the country's capital, which is about a two-hour drive from our city, so the closest English language school. Um, so uh, that's not doable by commuting. Um, our two older children then will attend a boarding school in East Africa, while our youngest will be homeschooled with us. As far as our funding, due to the circumstances there, we need to raise support in the conventional mission sending agency kind of route. Um, not unlike the population we served in Ethiopia, this hospital is in a relatively poor city in a relatively poor province of a developing world country. So the hospital and their patients are unable to pay us for our work. As I mentioned, we'll be going as volunteers. We have been accepted and appointed by a sending agency. And uh, now, similar to our situation years ago, now, by moving to North Africa, Africa, we view that what we are doing is not so much as walking away from uh, massive dual physician incomes and from all the people that we hold dear here in the US, but rather as investing our physician incomes and the relationships we treasure for greater gain in this life and in eternity. It's for gain. It's not because we are so, I don't know, 
obedient and so, you know, such wonderful Christians, but it's gain. So, uh, again, um, next slide. You might want to open up your Bibles to this because you're not going to believe that. You may not believe me when, the <laughs> when I tell you it's in here. But Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 29 through 30, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold, a hundredfold. Now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. I calculate a hundredfold, 100x, to be a 10,000% return on investment for those of you in finance or studying finance which would be a preposterous claim had it not come from the Lord of the universe, who, get, who in Romans 5.17 we learn, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That's the kind of God who's backing that claim. So, since he did say it, I think we can bank on it. So, um, when you think about that, to put it in some sort of terms now, you think, well, you know, is it, while well, these, you know, the limbs are going off, they're, they're, letting goods and kindreds go, they must be some really incredibly pious people, like, you know, that sort of thing. I thought, I thought of it like, suppose we're in the late 90s, the dot-com craze is going like crazy, all these startups. There's this little company called Amazon, um, run by this funny-looking guy, and he's selling books online. In the meantime, Barnes & Nobles, there's a company called Borders, which you guys haven't heard of because it went out of business, but at that time, it was these massive bookstores. People were just flooding in there, and you're thinking, yeah, I don't know, this guy might get some little niche thing. But, um, and let's say at that time, this, I'm making the numbers up a little bit, um, stock was selling at $100 a share. Now, if you knew, if I, if I told you that, uh, if I told you, like, you know, I had a time machine or said, and within 10 years, that share is going to be worth, um, is going to go up 10,000%, and I can guarantee you, and if you knew that that were to be the case, that means at $100 a share, you buy 10 shares, let's say $1,000, in 10 years it's gonna be worth $10 million. So if you knew that at that time, and let's say you didn't have a little, let's say you didn't have any money, you said, well, I don't have $1,000, but you thought, but I do have this junker car that if I sold it, I could get $1,000 for it. You'd be a fool not to get rid of that car and go and, uh, and put every single dollar that you have in Amazon. Why? Because you're going to get a 10,000% return on investment. So, um, and no one would look at you and say, wow, what an incredible sacrifice you did for that. No, of course not. They'd say, well, of course you did that. And so it is, even though um, it's a little bit, I, I must admit, as, as, a, uh, you know, as, a, as a person that we were overseas, come back, um, God graciously gave us great jobs, and I made a pile of money, way more money than I'd ever expected to make because we thought we're just gonna go off, be missionaries and all this stuff. And then when this uh, opportunity came around again, at my moments of foolishness, I actually had moments where I thought, what am I doing giving up this? I mean, I'm looking at my paychecks and all this stuff and I'm thinking, what am I doing? But in my moments of sanity, it's, it's just, it's not, even a, it's not even close, like why would you, why would you even, you'd be a fool not to do this when you think about those kinds of numbers and if it's true. And if the God of the universe isn't who he says he is, 
and he doesn't exist or something like that, we're in a lot more trouble than, than just uh, going off and missing out on some cash. But that's a whole other story. Um, of course, the God of the universe is true, and so we can bank on it. And there are, uh, uh, I, I only mention that because uh, I, think, I think Paul, Apostle Paul mentions that, that we're the mo we should be the most um, pitied if uh, Christ did not die, Christ did not, um, wasn't resurrected. On the other hand, the flip side is true too. It is, the, it is the best deal ever. Now, in medicine or surgery, when you think about treatment strategies or interventions, um, you can go with just personal experience. In other words, practice anecdotal medicine. Um, but it's generally a good idea to search the literature, meaning study, and do research for previously published data. In other words, look historically. So in the same way, I spent some time looking historically about this concept of using medicine as a means, as an intervention, as a strategy, to help reach the unreached uh, with the gospel. Now in these days, given technology, both in international travel and telecommunications, there are, for the most part, only two reasons why a people group is still unreached with the gospel. Either they are hostile to Christianity or they live in a hostile environment, or both. Um, but even centuries ago, such was the case for this country that we call Korea. I think there are uh, some of you out there that have Korean descent, and as you know, I do. Now today you think, what do you mean? The Koreans are prayer warriors. They have the largest churches in the world. I mean, they're all Christian, for crying out loud. I mean, look at you. Look at me. <laughs> the story was not quite so, uh, quite so optimistic uh, up until very recently. So you may... Um, I'll just give you a little history, I don't know if you know this, but in the, about the 1770s, Catholics from Rome were sent as missionaries, some Catholic priests were sent to Rome as missionaries to, to reach Korea. So they travel months on the seas and all that stuff to get over, land on the shores, within two weeks they get their heads chopped off. So this happened a few times, and, uh, and they stopped doing that. They, actually, they, they, went, they kept on doing it for a while, for 20, 30 years, um, they kept on getting their heads chopped off each time. So this is, again, 18th century, um, which, again, means that for almost 2,000 years after the gospel, Korea was unreached, no, no gospel. Um, and by the way, as an aside, people used to, people would, you would think that, you know, this whole idea of short-term mission started in the 80s or so with, you know, flight travel and all this other stuff, but uh, these guys were short-term missionaries. So they were career missionaries, but they were short-term. They only were there for two weeks, by the way. <laughs> So um, short-term missions is nothing new, is what I'm trying to say. Um, so move forward, 100 years or so go by almost because, of course, everyone getting their heads chopped off, they're kind of like, let's not go to those people. They're not, you know, that's not a, that's not a good thing to do because they're, uh, they're kind of uh, hostile. So in 1866, um, a Welshman, someone from uh, Great Britain, um, was a Protestant, was the first Protestant that came down to um, Korea through China to distribute Chinese language Bibles. And uh, so they took it by ship, went along a river, ship got stuck in the river, and the Koreans burned down the ship and everyone in it burned them alive. So that's very charming. So once again, mm, maybe, not, maybe not the group that you want to go for. Less than 20 years later, so 18 years later, a Presbyterian physician named Dr. Horace Allen from the U.S. decides going to Korea. Now, 
I just, I, when I read this, I thought, you gotta think, like what was this guy thinking? And also, can you imagine going to the mission board? No, this is 18 years, this is, so it's 2019, this is like 2001, you know, you go somewhere and the missionaries all get killed, you know, burned alive. And now this guy is showing up and saying, I, I'm gonna go there. So first, I mean, how many mission boards do you have to go to before they're like, okay, go for it. Um, but then the other thing you have to think about is the cost. So to travel to Korea now, I don't know, on certain bargain airfares, you could probably get it for 700 bucks, something like that. And, um, but at that time, 1800s, and there's just some trade going on there, I mean, I don't know, it's, probably five figures, maybe even six figures to, to travel out there. And that's, uh, that's a lot of money. So I just imagine him um, going from built city to city, talking about going to this place of barbarians that are savages that are just killing people and burning them alive, and farmers and bakers and seamstresses and bankers saying, you know, if you're willing to go do that, I'm willing to work. And, uh, and help get there. Anyway, so he makes his way over in 1884. Now by this time, uh, Korea has opened up a little bit more to trade to Westerners so they don't immediately kill him. And um, uh, apparently the king at that time, a person named King Ko Jung, um, is the name that I found. His nephew, uh, a Prince Minyong, um, is uh, stabbed during a coup attempt. So he isn't killed, but he's stabbed. So Dr. Allen, seeing this and seeing the state of Korean medicine, said, I'll take care of him. Which is, of course, at great risk to him, because if he were to die, if the prince were to die, then, of course, he would be executed. But as God would have it, the prince um, recovers. And, uh, and the king now doesn't become a Christian, but he legalizes Christianity. So allows Dr. Allen to establish a, um, Christian institutions. So he opened up a, a hospital called Gwang Hewan, House of Extended Grace. Anyway, it's a long history. But after that, Christianity becomes legalized, and then the explosion and the expansion that we know less than 100 or 120, less than 150 years later, by some estimates, Korea is sending out more missionaries per capita than any country in the world. This is short history. Um, now, wouldn't it be like God to take North African Muslims 100 years from now and have them sending out more missionaries per capita than any other place in the world. Can you imagine that? And this is the way God works. Now, anytime anyone becomes a Christian, it's a miracle. It's a resurrection from life to death. I'm sorry, death to life, right? But, you know, in America, you grow up in a Christian home, blah, 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 I don't have this great testimony, or whatever, you know, and it just seems like, well, of course you're going to become a Christian because your parents are. No, that's... That's a miracle, something spectacular has happened. But just to remind us, I think God does stuff like this that is inexplicable. For the Koreans to have become Christian is unbelievable. For the Koreans to not only become Christians, but to send out missionaries would be unfathomable. The only explanation would be a miracle, would be God. There would be no other explanation, no psychological, no social explanation. And such it is right now, wouldn't it, isn't it? to imagine the Muslim world suddenly um, becoming Christians. There would be no other explanation except God. And could it be that maybe 200 years from now, when we're long gone, the church will look back at, on this time in history as a turning point, where it'd say that was the moment when it started. 
There were nameless, faceless believers willing to take the risk and go, and many others willing to risk their finances to send, even though they would never live to see the day of the ultimate fruit of their risks. Well, let us, let us pray to that end. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, what a great and holy and good and loving God you are. We ask that you would show mercy on the utterly and lost, unreached peoples of North Africa and send them preachers so they might hear of you, believe in you, and call on you so that, you would be, so that they would be saved. You have consigned all to disobedience that you might show mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are your judgments and how inscrutable your ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to you that you might be repaid? For from you and through you and to you are all things. To you be glory forever. Amen.